1: In this episode of The Unmistakable Creative, I speak with Gary Goldstein. Having produced movies such as the iconic film Pretty Woman, Gary takes us to the story behind the story and why we need to hear no and the importance of failure in our lives. Gary, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So, I came across you by way of our mutual friend, Michael Roderick, and when he told me uh, about your body of work and what it is that you do, I thought, yeah, absolutely, we've got to have this guy uh, as a guest on the show. Uh, so on that note, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself, your background, your story, your journey, and how that has led you to where you're at and what you're up to in the world today?
5: Absolutely. As Bill Cosby once said, it all began as a child. <laughs> <laughs> um I, you know, the, the the I was born and and lived the early part of my life in New York. I, I moved to San Francisco at, at the ripe age of 10, grew up in the Bay Area, which was fabulous. And, of course, now make my, my home in L.A. for many years. But the one through line of everything that we're going to talk about is at a very young age, I would say I discovered my I, – I, I grew up inside of a book. I fell in love with story and character and – uh, the, the, the exploring these worlds and getting lost in these worlds from a very young age. My first superhero I discovered, I believe I was age seven, it was the Scarlet Pimpernel. And I sort of never have looked back. Um, I, I you know, grew up at a time in the 60s where it was a very exciting time. I went to Berkeley, I produced all the concerts on the campus. It was this wonderful, tumultuous, social, cultural, political time of... Um, uh, you know it was like a bottleneck in history that was so exquisite, um, and uh, the music reflected that and I produced all the music concerts on the Berkeley campus at the time as a freshman and 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 beyond and um, I actually thought I was going to go into the music business. I just love story in all its forms, whether it was lyric or film or book um, and um, uh, coming out of Berkeley. I was very unclear what to do in life. Uh, I had absolutely no sense of where I should go, other than my father. Um, my best friend was my dad, and he had a, He was an old school merchant. He had a wonderful business that he built from the ground up. Uh, old school, sort of, you know, wholesale, retail, uh, toys, carnival supplies, that sort of thing. And he and he and he would have more than welcomed me into the business. That would be an understatement. But I knew. In my heart of hearts, that if I did that and I went to the same physical location, and I was wed to uh, sort of serving um, physical goods to the public, uh, uh, it, I would I would wither from within. Hmm. Uh, I knew that I wanted to live a life of ideas, that I wanted to rely on my brain and creativity and dialogue and story. Uh, somehow, some way, I didn't know what form it might take. Um, one of my heroes back then was Max Perkins, Maxwell Perkins, who was the, in my view, the single greatest editor, uh, of the last century. He discovered, nurtured, launched, was father figure to everyone from Faulkner, Hemingway, Ringlardner, Thomas Wolfe, on and on. Half of the great American authors were his kids, so to speak. Well, my other heroes were the criminal defense lawyers of the day, the William Kunstler, the people who defended the Chicago Seven, and all those sorts of. So the first path I went down was to say, after I bummed around out of college for several years, just wait, you know, trying to sort out who I was. I thought I have this romantic idea. I'm going to go be a criminal defense lawyer. I'll be champion of the underdog because the theatrics of the courtroom and needing to tell a persuasive, compelling story, lest something bad happen was very alluring to me. So I actually did that. I went to law school. I worked out in um, this part of San Francisco, a, a ghetto. And in lieu of the public defender, we represented the indigent adult community. And it was a chapter of my life that I would tell you was one of the greatest, one of the most edifying and rich and surprising and unexpected. And yet perhaps the one pursuit I chose um, in all my schizophrenic years of making different choices, that was probably the choice I made that was the least uh, harmonious with my temperament. It was chalk on the blackboard. It was a very harsh. I was a romantic lost in a harsh world. Um, so I did that for a time. And then I, 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 I sort of fled uh, San Francisco for the Southland as far as, uh, away as I could get in the state of California, which also happened to have sunshine and beautiful weather, which also happened to have the film business. Uh, and that was sort of my other thing. I thought if I could be just a, a fraction to the to the filmmakers, the writers and directors, the storytellers of the cinema, what Max Perkins was to the great authors of the last century, that would be a very rich life. That would be um, sort of a legacy move, if you will, and, and it would feed me on many levels. Uh, so that's what I did. I came here and I... In the early '80s, I opened up a management company. Um, I knew nothing about the business. I knew I had never been to LA. I didn't know anybody here, <clears throat> but um, and I, I didn't know enough to know what I didn't know. But I asked around, and I found out that you could be a manager um, without any qualification. You just a, hang a shingle, uh, and that sounded like me. Um, I was very you know i had generations of guys that i grew up under watching my um, my family members on both sides of my family who had always been entrepreneurs so i just assumed that it was it was our birthright to try and fail and ultimately make our way in the world and do our own thing so that was sort of driving me i figured uh, naively that i would eventually succeed (laughs) and um so that's what I did. I came here, I opened, I started discovering these young, very green writers and directors and I started representing them and, and that turned into uh, actually a wonderful business. I, I, I sort of, after, after a lot of straight knees and bloody noses and, 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 and you know, no income for several years, I, it finally came together and I figured it out and I had a lot of mentors along the way and eventually it became a business. Cut to 1988, the writers went on strike, the whole business shut down, film and television, all of Hollywood. I went to one of my young writers and said, please, I know you've always wanted to direct, why don't you dust off one of your screenplays, and I'll go out and raise a few shekels, a little money, Mm -hmm. and you make your directorial debut, I'll make my debut as a producer, and together we'll go figure this thing out, and we... We made an, a low to no budget film called Cannibal Women in the Avocado Jungle of Death, <laughs> uh, which ran on cable for fifteen years. It cost seventeen dollars in a box top and um, and I got the bug I got the bug as, as as this is a much bigger challenge being a producer and a storyteller from instead of supporting other people's careers, I basically put myself in the chair of being my own client mm-hmm. and that was sort of how i you know that that's probably more than you wanted to know, but that's is, is you know that's sort of the top line of how I got from there to here mm-hmm.
1: all right, so a ton of stuff here um i, I want to go back to the very beginning i mean you you basically talked about this idea of a through line uh in which story really was the through line I'm curious you know, when when you're working with young people when you're working with people in general, how do we find the through line in our own lives?
5: Uh, well, it's a, the, the, one of, perhaps one of the greatest challenges for a living creature uh, that happens to be human. Um, it, I find that I, it, I am fascinated. I'm endlessly curious about people. I love asking questions and hearing their stories. But what I notice consistently is that most people take themselves for granted and tell a lesser story about themselves to themselves. So they really have no idea what, what's so unique and fascinating and amazing about them. Mm. Uh, and, and it holds them back. Um, I, I, I once said, and I've, held, I've, I've never disproved this idea, which is that the story most people tell about themselves is fiction. And the story that others would tell about them is nonfiction. And so one of the exercises that I love to have people do is to go to people that are very thoughtful very sincere that know them for differing lengths of time from different aspects of their life and ask them sincerely if not to respond right away but to consider if they're willing and to be boldly honest and and raw and vulnerable tell me when you think of my name when you think of me what values what experiences what good bad or ugly comes to mind what have i meant to you if anything When you find a handful of people of a certain character or caliber who are willing to play that game with you, to be that kind of honest with you, my experience is for many people that's life-changing. Literally, it alters their sense of who they are in the world forever because they've never seen themselves reflected in the mirror of their mind in the same way.
1: Wow. Uh, I am totally going to do that. (laughs) Uh, so really, really brilliant. Uh, you know, one of the other questions I wanted to ask you is about your time at Berkeley. And it's funny cause we share that in common. I went to Berkeley huh. and you know, especially Berkeley during the sixties and music. I mean, that's such a huge sort of cultural and social influence. And I wonder how that has impacted your life and your career and your worldview and, and kind of how that has influenced the way you tell stories and the way you produce movies.
5: Um, it absolutely has. I mean, I would say a couple of things about it. I, first of all, before I got to Berkeley, growing up in the heart of the city, not far from the Ashbury in the 60s, spending most of my evenings as a uh, pre-college teen at the, uh, you know, the Fillmore West, the, the Avalon, the Sutter, the Family Dog, hanging out at Speedway Meadows and Golden Gate Park for all the free concerts. Basically, I lived blocks from the Grateful Dead, blocks from the Jefferson Airplane, uh, Janice Joplin his, played as a party band at a high school thing that we did on and on and on, um, and when you grew up in that era, it was kind of like perpetual burning man all year round um, in our way back in the tie dyed hippie era um, and and it really was the era of love and it was you know we were exploring a lot of ideas and poly, not just social but political and otherwise, going to Berkeley, which was of course one one of the hotbeds was sort of one of the focal points of that movement of that era. Um, and, and being responsible for putting on the concerts was really interesting. I got to bring Joni Mitchell and, and all these really people who were at the forefront, really their songs were deeply embedded in, and descriptive of what was going on. What was the friction point culturally of that time. And so dealing with, you know, Phil Oaks and Joni and all these people was, was was an interesting contrast to what was happening on the campus at the time, which was, you know, people being uh, the campus being cordoned off uh, by tactical squads with helicopters flying over dropping tear gas. You've seen all this, you know all this, um, and people being taken off to, to Santa Rita prison and 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 the anger and the frustration on all sides—the parents, the administration, the students, everyone having a very very. But everyone, I, I think what was so fascinating was seeing everyone so completely 100% immersed, engaged in the fabric of the same conversation. There was no separation between, um, you know, the music that you liked and the, you know, how you lived your life. It was all very, very holistic. Um, and I think it was very, it was very, it informed more than I would ever consciously be aware of who I am today. Um, I, I lost a lot of very dear friends. Um, uh, not, not in the ultimate sense, but I lost friends because there were serious arguments. If you remember, Michael Antonioni's film Z came out at that time, which was really a film about if you if you want to step across certain lines, social compact lines. If you want to become a radical, then do it, but do it full on, knowing there are consequences, um, and 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 don't be a faux revolutionary. Don't be the person who throws a rock through your Sprawl hole window to make a statement and run away and hide. Uh-huh. Um, that's just not, that's not cricket. Um, so we would get into these robust arguments and, um, I, it was just a really alive time. It did a lot to inform me about who I am, how I wanted to behave choices. I would make my sense of empathy. Um, um, hearing people's, uh, you know, it was also the time of the, you know, the, the draft, the lottery, um, and, and the Vietnam War and the terror—literally the terror of all my friends—are they going to call my number? Mm-hmm. So there were all these social pressures in this in this pressure cooker going on at the time that made for a very unusual several-year period, um, starting with that seminal year '68. And yeah. uh, I, I don't know, Srinivas, how to describe the extent to which or the specific ways in which it formed me, but you can tell by the choices that I've made. I'm fairly, um, I would say fairly liberal as a mm-hmm. person, um, empathetic as a person. Um, I, I, I care deeply about people. I'm fascinated by people. I, I'm, you know, I've, that that's never shifted. How I express it has shifted. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, yeah, so, so one of the things that's really interesting to me also is this idea that when you got out, you're very unclear. And I get the sense that, that's that, that lack of clarity is something that many of us carry into our adult lives. I, I can tell you you know when I, when I got out of Berkeley, I remember not necessarily feeling unclear, but also it was like somebody said, "Hey, these are your career options. these are the colors you can paint with. By the way, there are hundreds of others, but I was completely unaware of them. And I guess really for me, the question is how you find clarity uh, in your life.
5: Um, I don't know the, that there's a perfect answer or clear answer for all of humanity. I wish that I did because I'd be a very wealthy man.
1: <laughs> um, you and me both.
5: I, I'd also be a very wise man. Um, I, I, I think there's several things about that. I, you know, people, we talk a lot today that we, you know, this is new. We, we talk in, in, in the vernacular of today is, you know, find your purpose, find your passion, live your, do your passion. And I, I think that's a you know, that that's something that's probably always been the case and and, and but when I was growing up, there were very few people who, who actually thought that actively or acted on that as a as a as a as a value. It was like get a good job, get a good, you know, a respectable job and and and, and you know um, contribute as you might, but it wasn't about, you know, going off being, you know, finding your true passion and purpose and being an artist or whatever it was. I think the game is the same as it's always been, though, really. When you come down to it, it's about self-belief. It's about confidence. And the only way you do that is by diving into the deep end of the pool called life and rolling up your sleeves and saying, "I, you know what, just like you said, you don't know what all those other colors or options or, you know, which suit of clothes is going to fit or not. Get in the game. Try things out. The, the the worst thing that can happen is that you fail and the and, and and the irony of that terrifying idea that we fail, because we grow up with report cards, right? Literally, every facet of our life is a report card. What car do you drive? Who do you know? You know what grades did you get? How much money is in your bank account? Who cares? But we grow up with this concept of a report card and the, the, as if the world is watching us through a microscope. Hmm. And they're not. Nobody cares. <laughs> really, you're the person who's grading yourself. That's the trick. That's the the mischievous. Merry pranksterness of it all is that you're the one who's wagging your finger at yourself, and if you just get in the game and say, you know what, the, I am a black belt. I feel like no one I know, literally, no one has failed more than me. Yes. I mean, you know, we talk about Pretty Woman in this film and that thing, and whatever I did, and being an attorney, I would I I would swear on a stack of any Bibles or any other document that um, I have failed absolutely, from the time I was very young until today, and it continues, I failed to get into law school. Did I get in eventually? Yes. Um, But I was rejected. I've been rejected and tripped on no a gazillion times. And I gave a TEDx talk once. It was not a great talk, but it was, you know, the thesis, the title was basically, um, uh, no is just a conversation starter. And the idea of that talk was both no is a conversation starter with the external world, your inner circle and people that you're just meeting, but also with self. And what I've noticed is as much as I failed, um, nothing bad's ever happened except for my self judgment. That's the only thing bad that's ever come of it. But I think that the more you try, the more you get those, those no notches, those failure notches on your gun. That's, you know, that's the only way you get to be good at something. Mm -hmm. Um, there's just no, there's no way to get there without going through that township called no. (laughs) It's like, so I, I, I believe that self belief and confidence, if you're willing to get muddy and get dirty and see that you survive and that you find what you love, because that's also how you find what you care about. And very importantly, what you don't care about. I've tried a lot of things that I thought thought intellectually, that would be really interesting. That would be good. And I got into it, and it was like, that's so not my personality.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: I'm not an operations guy. I'm not a retail guy. I'm not so many things. I'm not an attorney. There's a lot of stuff I've tried that wasn't a good fit. Well, great. Thank you, universe. Now I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I think, you know, ahead. I would just say this, you. If you, if you, if you could embrace the concept that life you know, life is precious and in our lifetime, I don't think we're raised to be literate about a whole lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff that we're not taught real world stuff. And one of that is how to, how to live fully into your capacity, how to express yourself, how to, how to, how to be bold in life. But I think when you come right down to it, your choices define which path you're on. You can either be a mechanic Mm -hmm. or a magician. And for me, Magic is the, about the story of life and relation and g- like stalking the most brilliant, delicious. I, I you know, people ask me what I do. I always give a different answer. I harvest genius. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a cool hunter of human beings. I am, you know, I, it's never about a label, uh, but it's about really letting people know what the deeper story of what you care about, what your strategy in life is, Let pe- letting people fall in love with you. You communicate from the inside out because the majority of folks are tactical. They're not. Um, but but that those sort of that tactical. If you if you live according to a report card, it's it's just not the kind of reward that makes you do a happy dance. Mm-hmm. And I think it's time to go after a bigger game for most people. Most people, in their heart of hearts, you know, they, they know intuitive magic doesn't care about tactics. And I you know, there's a wonderful old Chinese proverb that says, um, uh, um, "I have to remember a child's life." is like a piece of paper on which everyone leaves a mark. And that's how each of us should feel toward the thing we care about and the people we interact with every moment of every day. We're leaving a mark that lasts a lifetime, even though we may not sort of measure that out or think that consciously as we're moving through our day. But it's like, be a magician. And the only way to get to magic is to not care how bloody you get and how many times you fail. Don't keep track. In fact, if... Actually I would I I take that back. Keep track. Have a goal that is so audacious. Like I am gonna fail twenty-seven times this day, and tomorrow I'm gonna fail thirty-two times. I am gonna fail like nobody's ever failed. I'm gonna be the greatest (laughs) failure ever.
2: Just go for it. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry.
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
1: So, yeah, I I love this. I mean, there's so much gold in here. Uh, You know, one of the things you mentioned, I, I love this idea that often... Where these failures get us tripped up is, is this idea of self-judgment and that we're, you know, in a lot of ways, we're our own critics and it's that voice in our head that keeps us trapped. And I am really one wondering how you let go of self-judgment. And, you know, earlier you mentioned this idea of, you know, s- scraped knees and, and, you know, getting just beat up. And I'd love for you to talk about some specific failures in your life and how you've come out of the other side of them. Uh, better off for having been through them?
5: Oh, my God. Um, okay, well, I have a treasure chest that is like, it's got no bottom. Um, so I'll just pick a couple. Um, I mean, I mentioned that I was rejected from law school, and and, and that was um, kind of a travesty. Actually, I'll tell a quick story there. So I was working as a free intern. I went out to the, this area of San Francisco, Baby Hunters Point. It's a, it's a ghetto. There was a group. Uh, a foundation that had job counseling, drug counseling, this community experienced every social ill known to mankind. I mean, it was sad. And at the center of this organization was the criminal defense unit, which was the sexy sort of fundraising attractive molecule. And these guys were amazing. The head guy, the chief counsel, was the former national president of the NAACP. He was a civil rights leader in the South before LBJ coined the phrase civil rights. He was a formidable, scary man to me. Um, I would say there were 120 some odd people who worked at this foundation overall I think two others were white I went out there um, so wet behind the ears this long haired kid out of college you know several years out of college and I was terrified because I'd never been there uh, and uh, I just begged the first person I saw to let me stay and I wanted to work here and they laughed and said who are you you know what are you doing and and are you in a, you're not an attorney are you I said no and they said well we don't have any money, let alone, we don't hire people. What are you doing? And I just begged, and I wouldn't go away. And finally, they just realized I wasn't going away, and they said, okay, you're a free intern. And I said, great, I'll be here for one year, and I did. Long story short, I embedded myself, I like I, I became a part of that. I, I was drinking from this cup of life and learning and making these relationships that were really expanding me. They were terrifying, but they were expanding me. And, and these people taught me so much about life and law. So the letter comes one day. I'm rejected from the only law school I applied to because they had the best criminal program. And these lawyers walk in and they see this long face and they say, what's what's the matter? And I show them the letter. And I am just having a self, you know, a pity party. And they say, great, don't leave. We'll be back from court. We have cases or trials. Uh, we'll be back this afternoon. Don't leave until we're back they actually came back mid-afternoon they had um i they called me into a room there were three attorneys in their suits holding bottles of champagne standing on top of a table this run ramshackle you know so-called conference room and um and saying congratulations counselor and i was like what are you are you guys drunk what are you doing and they said nope we went to court, we canceled our, our we got continuances, we canceled our, our appearances, we went home, put on our best suits, went down, cornered the dean at the law school that rejected you, and, 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 and literally cornered her in her office and said, do you know who we are? And she said, my God, you're legendary. Everybody knows Baby Hunter's point, of course. Um, well, you're the dean. Do you have a wild card admission? Yes, I do. Write down this name, Gary Goldstein. She did. Is he admitted now on our say so? She said, well, I guess so. that's how i got into law school i mean those kinds of experiences like that you know is that has defined my life relationships trump results relationships are what life is about that is in itself success right there the external stuff comes later Mm. opportunity and success and 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 achievement and all that beautiful stuff comes by associating with the caliber of people who are who committed and bright and honorable and value-based and just doing interesting stuff. And we're not necessarily in your given area. Have mm-hmm. friends in all walks of life. Who cares, right? You uh, interview people from every conceivable walk of life and as part of the unmistakable creative. What a treat that you get to meet all those delicious different kinds of people and spirits. Um, but that was, that's typical. I failed uh, when I moved to LA to get into the film business. One of my early heroes was Francis Ford Coppola. His early films, I thought, were, you know, I mean, he wasn't my only, I love Sergio Leone and many other filmmakers, but but Coppola was a hero. I ca- this was way before email, right? So I called American Zoetrope his company. My fantasy was, I'm going to call him, I'm going to work there, I'll work my way up the ladder, I'm going to become friends with him, I'm going to spend my life working with Francis Ford Coppola. And life is going to be beautiful. Um, no one would ever return my call. I must have called 47 times. And no one would ever return my call. And I thought, how unfair is life if he only knew I would work smart and hard and be the best? Well, they didn't care. Uh, So they never returned my call. And he had toured the country, the U.S., uh, with, with, I don't know how many people are old enough to remember this. He had a film called Napoleon. It was a beautiful film from the 20s. Um, about Napoleon and he toured this in the grand halls the grand theaters live theaters in, in America and he, and he he would put, play it in triptych on three screens simultaneously accompanied by a live symphony so whatever city it was San Francisco you know Columbus whatever New York big symphony big hall Teamsters the whole deal big huge classic and commercial I mean the world fell in love with him for the, this was genius so creative so smart Someone approached me with the rights to a film called The New Babylon in black and white. It was about the communards in Paris. It was made in the 20s. It featured a score by a then 21-year-old Shostakovich. It was art times a 1,000. It was brilliant. And I thought, little Gary thought, well, I may be new here and he won't return my calls. So I'm just going to option the rights. I'm going to borrow some money. I'm going to put on a show. I'm going to tour the country. I'm going to be Coppola Jr. He will have to pay attention to me and call me. I did that. I opened in the great test city of, the, of, of America, which is Columbus, Ohio. Um, I didn't know what I was doing. Literally. I had no idea. I did radio spots, TV spots. This I didn't know what to do with them. I hired a company in Columbus to market this thing and sell the tickets. And I ru- hired the Hall, the Teamsters, the Symphony, etc. And I had a budget. of I borrowed $80,000, which was how much I needed to pull this off. And if it was a success, I'd bank a lot of money and, you know, continue. And I was confident. Turns out, I, I arrived in Columbus, having called every, every, every day, and everybody there was saying, yeah, everything's going great, everything's going great. I arrived in Columbus, and what do I find? They not only didn't schedule it when school was in, those 30,000 students were there. They didn't schedule it during the arts hustle that brings in another 20,000 from the surrounding um, uh, Midwest. Uh, school was out. No one was in town. They had done zero marketing. There was not one ticket sold. I had a huge gilded theater that sat, you know, a couple of thousand people that was going to be empty. And I was going to lose $80,000 that weekend, which is in fact what happened. I, you know, went on radio and gave as many tickets away for free as I could. Uh, came home with my tail between my legs thinking because 80000 to me in, in the early 80s was like, might as well have been $8 million. And I thought, I have no idea how I'll ever dig out from this. How will I ever pay this money back? Uh, how will I get out from this sense of shame and failure that quashed my spirit, that ground me like under a heel into the cement? That's how I felt. Hmm. Um, how am I, I can't go back to San Francisco with my tail between my legs. I can't go back to being an attorney. I can't go back, period. I refuse, but I feel horrible. What am I going to do? I, I could I could use up the whole rest of our hour together telling you stories like that. I fail every film I've made. There are ten, if not twenty, of equal merit that never got made. That just ultimately, after years of investment of heart and sweat equity, uh, just died. Um. They, for one or another reason, um, you know, you, 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 you watch your children fail and and you, you just have to say, I did my best and I cared deeply about it and I learned a lot. And that's the thing. Every time, whether it was the film in Columbus, whether it was films that failed, whether it was, you know, getting rejected from law school and now finding my way in, at every turn, the truth is. Those were gifts from the universe. I made amazing deeper relation. Failures bring you closer to yourself and closer to others than success. Success is easy. Failure is real. Failure is what lights us up and wants us to reach out and help one another. It brings us closer in conversation and in emotion to one another than anything else. And as long as you stay open-hearted and not become calloused or you know don't build up scar tissue like be honest just be honest tell it for what it is um and you know there's a there's also a a flip side which you know there was a wonderful ray charles and quincy jones when they were you know probably back in the 40s when they were coming up together um they had a saying that they used to say to each other like every day and the saying was not one drop and the full sentence was not one drop of my self-worth depends on your acceptance of me.
1: Wow. Um, okay, so way more questions. Uh, I love that last piece. How do you cultivate that on an ongoing basis?
5: Surround yourself with really good people. Okay. I mean, I've noticed that successful people, quality people, however you want, people of character, people that you would that you admire, that you would wish to emulate for one or own. Or a number of reasons, people who've succeeded and been through stuff—ninety some high percent, most of them—are people of generous spirit. Because once you've been through the wars, you know what that's all about, and it's hard to be selfish. Um, it's you—you you tend to want to give back. You—you you know whether you do it officially under the moniker of men- mentoring or whether you just do it because it's your nature to help people, mm-hmm. um, you, you tend to share what you've learned along the way. And it's selfish in the best way. You know, mentoring is a totally selfish thing, right? Uh, and yet, it's very generous because you're really impacting lives in a way that makes a potentially huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, you, who was it? Charlie Tremendous Jones, I think, was the one. I, a lot of people have been credited for it. That saying that um, you're the average of the five people closest to you um, and, or, and that you'll be the same person in five years as you are today with two exceptions. One is the book you, books you read and the, and the people that you meet and the people are it. The people are the A number one secret sauce. That's what's inside the Coke, the can of Coca-Cola. Go meet great target them, like be intentional. Don't let it be random, mm-hmm. you know, like figure out who are the people that are your heroes. Go to them palms up, like totally, total humility. And say, hey, I'm a fetus. I'm a polywog, I'm still dripping wet. But your body of work, what you've done, this particular thing or that thing that I noticed, um, would you be willing to be my five-minute mentor? I just need – I have one or two questions. And be specific. It's one question. It's two questions. I need 4.7 minutes of your – I do that all the time still mm-hmm. to this day. I need 4.7 minutes of your time. Can you make that available for me? It would change my life. It would be add immense value. Just the fact that you would speak speak to me would be important. And people will. They do. It's amazing. I have a simple theory that no one is unreachable. And the, and the corollary to that is that no matter who you are, and I mean that, no matter who you are, no matter what you think of yourself, you know, if you're focused on all that you haven't done or your defeats or... Uh, whatever story you tell yourself about yourself, you deserve to succeed at being who you are in the world, increasingly so. And part of that is that you actually have earned the right just by being here. You deserve to be in communion with whoever you would choose, as long as you're vulnerable and honest about how you, how you enter that conversation. And people will, will, will embrace you and welcome you.
1: Hmm. I love that. I'm not even going to touch it. Uh, you know, so one of the things you mentioned earlier was this sense of withering within, not making decisions that are harmonious, which put you in law school, and then the idea of a legacy move. So I, I'm going to combine three questions into one in the interest of time. How do we get out of that feeling of withering within, make you know, harmonious decisions, and determine what our legacy move is going to be?
5: Oh golly! Uh, you, you you ask such simple mathematical questions. Um, that's a great one. Um, I would, you know. Sometimes I'm a list maker. Like I used to do the, those exercises where I'd say, "Here are the pros. Here are the here are the things that I love. Here are the things I don't love." Um, and I mentioned earlier, for example, there the, when I started film producing, I I I. Uh, the first couple of films I did, I was a line producer. And for those who don't know line producers, as opposed to say a creative producer, there are different kinds of producers. Line producers that very technical, you know, like I'm responsible for the schedule, the board, the budget dollars in dollars out. I, the, you know, I moved the, I'm the engineer and it grated on my spirit. It absolutely, I thought if this is producing, I picked the wrong deal. What I realized was, oh, no, I didn't pick the wrong deal. I'm just doing it the wrong way. I should hire that person because those are – I want to live into my strengths. I don't want to learn to be great at everything that I don't naturally gravitate to, that I don't enjoy, that I'm not – that I have no aptitude for. It's just painful. I tried, you know, I've, I've, I've tried that with e-commerce and web development. It's like, hey, that's so not me. I, I kind of admire people who do it, but it's not me. So you just start – categorically going through life and saying, when was I really feeling alive? When was I in flow? When was my mojo working? And, uh, you know, uh, people lined up behind me. When you do what you're really naturally good at, you sort of get into this rhythm. It's almost a version of, of innate creative leadership because your enthusiasm rises within you. And the way you speak changes, and the cadence and the and the tone of voice changes. Make sure that you're excited by the idea of what you're about to do. And I think part of that is just doing a checklist and saying, "Hey, nope, I don't like all of the you know th- this is not me. This doesn't speak to me." Mm-hmm. And look, as a kid, what what lit you up? Ask your friends, what do you th- what do you? Th- Here's the other piece. Remember, earlier in this talk, we talked about that thing where you ask a handful of people or more um, to give you a a, a very deep sort of candid bit of feedback about who you are. And a a different version of that that is also, I think, a really handy nifty exercise is to say, uh, what would you describe as my one superpower, the thing that I do that I manifest most naturally with the least effort that I'm the best at, that bespeaks who I am, it's consonant with my, my being. What do you see as being my superpower? The thing that makes me unique and is different from what others do. It's amazing what people will say. <laughs>
1: I'm going to totally use that as a a Facebook status update to see what I find out.
5: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people see you, I think people, people are very perceptive. Generally, I believe people want to be engaged at that more honest, deeper heart centered level. Uh, When invited, it makes, you know, I mean, that's, that's the key to like developing amazing friendships Mm -hmm. is don't keep it from the neck up. Go to that, more uh, heart-centered, gut split—you know, whatever you want to call it—the viscera, the solar plexus—go to that central place where we all connect, and ask them a question that's so so simple and honest um, and provocative. Because in 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 the end, it's also going to make them think perhaps about what is their own superpower. It's a you know, because the question becomes a gift in a way.
1: Mm, I love that. Let's do this. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit because, you know, we're, we're getting close to a, about an hour, 50 minutes or so. Uh, you know, you've had massive success. I mean, you've produced a film like Pretty Woman, which really, I mean, that's kind of a cultural icon of the time that it was produced in and created in. Uh and what I'm where I want to take this actually is is something that I read on brain pickings uh, that I'll read that really struck me. And I'm very curious to hear your perspective on this after having had the success that you have. And then we'll, we'll talk specifics. But, you know, Maria Popova said the real work is how not to hang your self-worth, your sense of success and merits, the fullness of your heart and the stability of your soul on those numbers. On that constant positive reinforcement and external validation, that's the only real work. And the irony is that the more successful you get by either your own standards or external standards, the harder it is to decouple all of those inner values from your work.
5: Could I ask you to read that again? That's an insanely delicious quote. Would you do me the honor of reading that one more time? Yeah,
1: for sure. The real work is how not to hang your self-worth, your sense of success and merits, the fullness of your heart, and the stability of your soul on those numbers, on that constant positive reinforcement and external validation. That's the only real work. And the irony is that the more successful you get by either your own standards or external standards, the harder it is to decouple all of those inner values from your work. That's it.
5: That, that, that kernel of truth is so beautiful. It reminds me, actually, Ben Kingsley, the actor Ben Kingsley, um, said something that I think is in the same family, same idea. He said, somewhere in your career, your work changes. It becomes less anal, less careful, and more spontaneous, more to do with the information that your soul carries. And I think that's just part of the evolution of this thing, this journey we call life. It's growing into the fullness of your spirit. And 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 and, and age <laughs> does have its benefits. You you just stop being so susceptible of or being influenced, so so available to be influenced by those sort of external or report card criteria, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, people like me or oh, they don't like me. Um, or they 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 showed up for this you know, my poetry reading or they, or they, or, you know, my income is, high. who cares? What becomes important is how am I, you know, Steve Jobs said, make a dent in the world, dent in the universe. And I think that really is what it's about. It's like, what, what, what am I here for? You know, mm-hmm. what am I, what am I to be remembered by? Um, um, and whether I'm remembered actually or not, it's a wonderful way of phrasing it, right? Um, is did I, did I matter? Mm-hmm. Did my life actually matter? And was I, did I contribute what was mine to do? Whatever that is, it could be big, it could be small, it could be anything. But did I give and contribute? Did I sing my song? And at some point, it stops being all that big a deal, whether people liked your song or didn't like yours. Because here's the truth some people will and some people won't. And, and that's just the way it is. Yeah. And you can't keep count of that. You can't track all that stuff. It's exhausting Mm -hmm. to the spirit. Um, That's a beautiful quote. Thank you for sharing that.
1: Yeah, you know, and the reason I brought it up is only because I experienced a very difficult uh, thing with noticing how much of my self worth was caught up in external accolades because they came in droves all of a sudden, and it was it was completely like out of my awareness that the very thing I had written about in my own book, I basically couldn't follow. Uh, ironically, the thing that got me the success was the thing that, you know, was not hanging my self-worth on it, and yet my self-worth got tied to it after a certain point.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, that's that's very common, of course. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for, for, fortunately, I, would, I was going to say unfortunately, I think fortunately, fortunately, Um, all those accolades on some level are ultimately definitionally very impersonal. I mean, I, am I'm very joyful and, and, and grateful and appreciative and happy, uh, to have developed and, 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 you know, been part of birthing pretty woman into the world, um, Primarily because people come up all the time, you know, and tell me stories about when they first saw it. They were they got engaged. This, you know, amazing, just unimaginable stories, and literally from all cultures and all ages. It's it's great. It's wonderful. But it has very little to do with me. My job was to do what I cared about at that time and do it as well as I could. And in that case, I was really very blessed. To get all all the right people, get all the you know to pull it together in just the right the right way, and you you never know until it comes out. The world tells you was that good work or not, (laughs) you know. You know, Uh, but I always think that that's nice, and it is nice. It's nice to say, oh, you know, you've been doing some good work in the world. But the important thing is not if you if you really start to if you allow yourself to care about that. There's a there's a real big danger, which is that you stop looking forward. My best work, I promise you, is yet ahead of me. Now, time will tell. But I believe that. I believe that so completely, authentically. It's not a line. I really think that I, I, everything that is this crazy quilt, these, all these disparate parts that didn't make any sense, I, couldn't, I thought that we wasted blocks of time that don't relate to one another. These, these, they, they didn't seem like puzzle pieces that would make a bigger picture, but they do for all of us. They do. There are no accidents. Everything that you learn contributes to you being expressed in a bigger, more delicious, effective way as you move through your life. My best work is ahead of me. It's not behind me. And if I get stuck being the guy who produced Pretty Woman, <laughs> um, you know, that's, there's kind of a, almost a sadness to that for me.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: So I'm appreciative of it. I'm excited about it, um, as I am of my other films. Actually, so, you know, the stories behind each film is so uniquely different. I don't mean the story of the film. I mean the story of how they got birth. What the what that film represents to me. Mm-hmm.
1: You
5: know, the Mothman Prophecies. That was rejected by everyone a thousand times. That film was never getting made until but I wouldn't give up because it was a private homage to my dad. That film represents the experience I had for the next couple of years after my father unexpectedly died all too young uh, and ripped my universe and my family's universe apart. And I was not going to not get that film made somehow, some way, because it honored my father. And the universe aligned. Um, The story behind the story by the way, very important that people share that. Don't just tell people what you want to do. It's really important to tell them the truth about why it matters. But, but I think we all have to understand that, you know, we go through life and, and the best, if you, if you, if you get in that habit of building that self-belief and that confidence and you exercise those muscles and you do these exercises, get people to reflect back the truth of you. It builds up this momentum where you appreciate everything that happens and the people in your life and the events and the achievements, but you don't get stuck in them because as long as we're breathing, we've got more to do.
3: Wow.
1: So I want to wrap with one last question, which is how we end everything here at the unmistakable creative as somebody who has you know, given birth to multiple pieces of art and things that really are, are cultural icons uh, when it comes to art, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
5: Oh, that's a great question. Um, I would say living, you know, I keep coming back to the same theme, apparently, today. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's just today. If, you, if we had this talk tomorrow, it would be different, I think. But today, if you could really understand how absolutely remarkable you are, and it has nothing to do with your job or what you've accomplished or anything like that, if you could just really see yourself. There's a wonderful um, uh, quote um, and I've got to I've got to share this with you if I can find it. Um, uh who who wrote The Little Prince? Um,
1: uh, I don't remember off the top of my head.
5: Um, Antoine de Saint-Exupery, or however you say his name. I don't know how you say his name. I'm terrible at that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had this saying. Um, I'm trying to think of it. Okay, I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, I lost my thread there for a moment. I shouldn't have thought of that quote. Uh, but if, you know, it's really just about... I think maturity, that process of evolving through the course of a lifetime, is about dropping any sense of pretense of not arguing with the universe or yourself or others it's accepting that reality is the greatest guru and what is, is and yours is just to make you know g- g- to constantly change, constantly evolve constantly contribute, just whatever comes to you what, and it's going to change, it's just going to shift but when you speak there's a There's this alchemical quality of someone who speaks from that sort of more resonant place of truth about who they are and what they really feel and the way they say it that makes them a leader, definitionally. To me, that's creativity. That's leadership. That's power from the inside out. I think what makes people unmistakable is speaking their truth, but not in a heavy way. Having some fun with it. it doesn't have to be, you know, all that important, it just has to be honest. And I think if you do that fairly consistently and make that a habit, you become unmistakable, you become memorable, you become an experience that stands out for everyone you come in, in touch with.
1: Wow, I love it. Uh, well, Gary. First off, let me say it has been my absolute pleasure to have you here as a guest on uh, The Unmistakable Creative. This has been really, really, really fascinating and, and mind-blowing. So on that note, can you tell our listeners where they can learn more about uh, your body of work and uh, what you're up to?
5: Um, there's this thing called Google. <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> it's, I, I, I'm not a big, I
5: have a couple of websites. If you're an aspiring creative. Uh, and you want to learn how to sort of, you know, like what are the strategies? You can go to uh, breaking into Hollywood.com. I've actually written a book. It's on Amazon. You can see it on the website as well. Breaking into Hollywood.com. There's a little personal site, my name, Gary W. Um, Goldstein.com. But you know what? Go to, go to YouTube. I have a YouTube channel. I forget the name of it. Breaking into Hollywood, I think. Um, And there's tons of, you know, conversations and, and just cool people that um, I do it on in hangouts, so it's video. But uh, there's a bunch of touch points
1: there. Awesome. Well, we will wrap with that. I will link up everything that Gary has mentioned in the show notes. Definitely come and visit the website. Uh, again, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Trini, it's
5: a delight. It's a pl- really pleasure to know you, and and what a wonderful way to sort of meet, if you will.
1: <laughs> Definitely, uh,
5: I'm I'm honored. Thank
1: you so much. Yeah, thanks for your time. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative.
5: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.